Open your Bibles with me this morning to Romans chapter 13, and we'll read that in just a moment. So um, um, now I'll tell you when, when we're ready to get to that. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to your word today, that the Holy Spirit would descend and give us understanding, that we would see what you have for us in these words written so long ago, that we might find the application in our lives, that the Spirit might fill us to such a point that we live these things out, these truths that you place before us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, you can tell from the topic, the theology of civil government, we are not here to deal with politics. We are here to deal with theology. Theology. Now, we often find theological issues debated in the political realm to such an extent that we begin to think that they are at their core political issues. In reality, many are theological in nature, but the church has simply relinquished our authority or our position of truth on those issues and kind of punted them over into the political realm. Now, I hope you understand that I try not to be political here. It is appropriate to make application in a current event from some passage that we are uh, studying. But it is inappropriate to promote a political party or agenda other than what is theologically laid out before us. Now, on October 7th, many evangelical pastors purposely preached politics from the pulpit uh, in a protest to the 1954 Johnson Amendment. Now, the Johnson Amendment states that entities that are exempt from federal income tax cannot, quote, participate in or intervene in, including the publishing or distributing of statements, any political campaign on behalf of or in opposition to any candidate for public office. Now, I did not agree with that protest, nor do I agree with the what is kind of culturally acceptable within certain churches of having a candidate come in and give the sermon. Basically, it is a political stump speech with some scripture thrown in to make it more palatable. Uh, I remember in Wilmington, it, was, um, it would have been this Sunday before the election, and a guy was coming down the road, and he had his tie on and his, his suit and looked, uh, looked very sharp, and he had a bunch of political flyers in his hand, and he was wondering if he could have a few moments in the service to talk about his candidacy. And I said, um, well, you're welcome to come and worship with us, but that's, that's just not what we do. I mean, we're here to worship the Lord. We're not here to, to be political. And he was kind of shocked that, that I wouldn't let him speak politically from the pulpit. Well, my job is to help you understand the Word of God, so that you can apply it in whatever context you find yourself. Now, as you probably know, the phrase, the wall of separation between the church and state, is not in the United States Constitution, but occurs in a letter written by Thomas Jefferson to the Danbury Baptist Association, written in 1802. And it reflects Jefferson's interpretation of the First Amendment, which is, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, we're prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So originally the First Amendment was included to ensure that the federal government would have nothing to do with the state religious affairs or instituting a, a national church like the Church of England. Remember, that was the context that they had come out of. Well, this same Congress which drafted the Constitution also affirmed the Northwest Ordinance of 1789, which states, religion 
morality and knowledge being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind, schools and the means of learning shall forever be encouraged. Thus religion and morality, morality based in religion, were part of the foundations of our nation and our educational system, etc. Since part of God's, since part of government's God-ordained function is to promote justice, and since by necessity that involves the legislation of morality, it is absurd, absurd to talk about a total separation between the church and the state. There is carryover and overlapping. But we have to understand, as we will look today, that there's the theological issue here of how God ordains a civil government and what is the response and position that the church is to take. Now, I will say that our faith is to shape all parts of our lives. That includes our politics and as well as everything else. Christ must be Lord of our political view. And you go, well, isn't that natural? You'd be surprised the number of people who will pitch out politics when it comes to the voting booth or pitch out their faith when it comes to the voting booth or actually serving in office. People whose lives are otherwise devoted to the things of Christ somehow punt when it comes to this. But 2 Corinthians makes it clear that we are to take every thought captive to what? The Word of God. Every thought captive to the Word of God. And that includes our political thinking. So voting should be done as Christians, not as Republicans, Democrats, Independents, Libertarians. We vote as believers. So we pray for God's wisdom going in. We don't pray for God's blessing on what we have already done. Okay? So let's build a foundation here so that we can understand the concept, biblically speaking, of the church and the state and how civil government is to be understood theologically. Now we understand that both the church and the state are ordained by God and each has its own function. Now, one of the roles of the state, and this is in your notes, one of the roles of the state is to protect against evil by instituting laws which promote justice and curb injustice. Let me say that again. One of the roles of the state, theologically speaking, is to protect against evil by instituting laws which promote justice and curb injustice. Now, God never gives the state the right to do wrong never gives the state the right to do wrong. The state is always subject to God and held accountable by God for the promotion of justice. Now, justice takes place when righteousness is rewarded and unrighteousness is punished. Justice takes place when righteousness is rewarded and unrighteousness is punished. Now, there have been, are, and will continue to be Plenty of unjust governments that oppress the goodness and cause unrighteous and cause the righteous to suffer. God deals with them in various ways, and we'll see that in a little bit. Okay. Now let's remember that the cruel and unjust abuses that some governments um, uh, impose upon their people are not a reflection of God's nature. When I say the government is ordained by God, I mean in principle, civil government is one of those institutions that is ordained by God. That is not to say that every government is just and righteous or reflects the nature of our Heavenly Father. Think of it this way. God has ordained marriage, but there are plenty of marriages in which abuse takes place, abandonment, and even divorce. Not every marriage reflects the character of our Heavenly Father. 
And the same is true in government. Abuses do not deny the sacredness of marriage, nor do they de- nor do they deny the institution of civil government according to the things of our Heavenly Father. Men abuse all of God's good gifts. There is none that is left without the stain of sin. We live in a fallen world, a wicked world, where all men are sinners and all fall short of his glory. Okay, that's kind of a foundation upon which we'll stand in this. Now, let's remember the context of the letter that Paul writes to the church at Rome from which our passage comes. Rome was the capital of the empire. It's a very important city, founded in 753 BC, but it's not mentioned in Scripture until the New Testament. Until the New Testament. In Paul's day, the city had a population of well over one million. The majority of those were slaves who served the free people. Okay? And their lot was one of being owned. Whatever their master said is what happened. So Paul wrote to the church at Rome towards the end of his third missionary journey, about 58 AD, and the Christians in Rome were a pretty eclectic group at that time. There were Jews who had endured a temporary expulsion from Rome under Claudius who had become believers. There were slaves who had become believers who were in danger of being executed at any moment according to the whim of their master. There were citizens who were subject to the excesses of the tax gatherers. And there had been 10 years of politically motivated murders, very prominent cases of adultery, and blatant injustices by the likes of Claudius, his crazy wives, and uh, their, their children, and of course under his stepson Nero. And it was into this context that Paul writes this letter to the church at Rome, in which, in part, he says, God has ordained the government under which you live. I don't think that's quite what they wanted to hear. So let's read. Uh, let me read chapter 13, Romans 1, chapter 13, 1 through 7. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore it is necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now notice in verse 1. There is no authority except from God. Civil authority comes directly from God. Now, I'm sure this, as I said, this is not what the church in Rome wanted to hear. They were under this persecution, and they were facing a growing difficulty of being Christians just because they were different, because they would not worship the emperor. They worshiped only one God. 
Now, when God created man and planned for our life here, he designed three institutions, three institutions that we find in Scripture. The first one is well known to all of us, and it is marriage. Okay? God designed from the very beginning of the book of Genesis that a man and a woman should leave their parents and cling to one another and create this institution of marriage and family, the two being coming together as one. Out of marriage comes a family, the basic social unit of society. So the first is marriage. The second institution we see throughout Scripture and throughout redemptive history is called the people of God, or otherwise known as the church with the big C, the church. God has a people whose life he leads, controls, and orders, and they are in society to reflect his character. We are here in this world to reflect the character of God. We are that influence within society as we live out the things of Christ here in this world. We are the standard of righteousness in terms of morality and conduct. We are imperfect. Don't forget that. God has ordained a people to be salt and light in this world. He institutes families to pass on wisdom, morality, ethics, and truth from one generation to the next. The third institution which God has ordained is civil government is civil government. He has ordained it for the protection and the preservation of the social order and for the punishment of those who do evil. Civil government exists because God designed it to exist. In fact, even when there is chaos and anarchy and things look like they're falling apart, men seek out order. We seek to have order in our rulers and in our governing authorities because chaos and the absence of social order and civil government are intolerable and sometimes even frightening. Even frightening. I'd say all you have to do is look at the gas lines in Staten Island. Chaos, okay, chaos. Paul is telling the believers in Rome and to us today that we are submit to the authorities of the civil government. No matter what form that government takes, no matter what style in which it works, we are called to respond to government authorities. There are two exceptions to this. Two exceptions. The first exception is when government commands us to do what God forbids. When government commands us to do what God forbids. An example of this would be the one-child policy in China where they have forced abortions. If the government came to you and said you can only have one child and your wife is pregnant, she has to have an abortion. We cannot follow what government says as an example. The second exception is we cannot do what government forbids us to do if God commands us to do it. We cannot do what government forbids us to do if God commands us to do it. An example of this, Peter is told not to preach the gospel. Okay, We have to obey God, not man, is his response. Remember, he was told, stop doing that. And he said, I'm not going to obey you. I have to obey God who commands us to present the gospel. We understand it may cost us our lives, but we go to our deaths realizing we're obedient to the Lord. It may cost us prison. We go to prison understanding that we are still obedient to the Lord. When I was in the Soviet Union, when it was called the Soviet Union, I met a pastor who had been in prison for 15 years, and he and I got a chance to talk. And I said, well, you know, what was your mindset? What were you thinking? And he said, well, I just assumed that Eventually, the scripture and the government were going to come in, in, into opposition, and I had to obey what God told me to. Even at 
even if it led me to the gulag for 15 years. And then with the fall of communism, he was released and had much more freedom to present the word of God. Okay? Two exceptions to that. Let's look at verse 2. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. Resistance to government is rebellion against God. Now remember, he institutes this in principle. No government is perfect, and the two exceptions will apply. The word resist here has the idea of lining yourself up against something, as in the military, lining yourself up against in opposition to, to take and arrange yourself for action against. When you do that, when you resist government, you've committed a crime against the Lord because he's instituted it, except for those exceptions, okay? Now, it was inconsequential, apparently in Paul's mind, whether the Roman emperor was elected by the people or whether he was appointed by the Senate or whether he was placed there by the military or whether he inherited his position. It didn't occur to Paul, or if it did, he doesn't write about it, whether Caesar was just or unjust, whether he was good or bad. He was the civil authority. We are called to obey that point up until the point it runs in runs against the things of God. So Paul says to the Roman Christians, submit. Now, we understand that it wasn't long after Paul sends this letter to Rome that Nero is in charge, and Nero, in my study of history, Nero was a flake, okay? And he, he, the fall guys were the Christians, and it got to the point where he would have a garden party, and he would take Christians, and he would ditch them and dip them in pitch, impale them on a stake, and he would light his garden party with burning Christians. Okay? That was the type of persecution that the church was facing in the first century. Paul says again in verse 2, and this is very important, they who have oppressed will receive judgment on themselves or even condemnation. They have no they who have oppressed will receive condemnation upon themselves. And we'll see this as we look at Daniel in the second portion of it. Now, the government takes the role of the enforcer in our society. There's no room in Scripture, really, for personal vengeance or revenge. In fact, it says God will revenge, but civil government has been given the power of the sword, not the church. When we look at the symbols of Christianity, what is the most prominent symbol of Christianity? It's the cross. If you were to look at a symbol of Islam, what would be the most prominent symbol of Islam? It's that sword that's around it, the scimitar. Okay? They have no problem using the sword to further their religious and political agenda because they are basically one and the same. Christians are not to take up the sword to force the agenda of the church. Our sword is what? Remember what we read earlier? It's the word of God. It's the only offensive weapon that we have. And what does Jesus say to Peter? The gates of hell cannot prevail against the forward movement of the church. They cannot stand against our one offensive weapon. Which is this black and white stuff here through which the Holy Spirit uses in such a powerful, powerful way. Now, that does not mean the state can use the sword willy-nilly whenever it wants. It is designed to use the sword to uphold justice. That is the purpose of the state, having the sword. Now, and it's out of this 
kind of thought pattern that we get the ideas of what is a just war and what is not a just war, and that is way more complex than I can deal with today. Okay? Look at verse 3. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. But for evil. Now, let's make this simple. If I drive down 565 at 85 miles an hour, I'm looking in my rearview mirror. And I'm looking way ahead because I don't want to come upon the civil authorities who are sitting there with their what? Their radar gun ready to catch me breaking the law. If you obey the law, then you don't have to look behind you. If you obey the law, then you are within those parameters. It is when you are outside the law that you have to be concerned. And I've, well, I won't tell you how fast I've been, but I've looked in my rearview mirror, okay? So you always, and it's, it's, it's a lot less stressful to be within, be within those things, okay? If you're looking over your shoulder all the time, there's a reason, because you're typically doing something wrong, okay? Do what is good, and you'll be praised. Do what is good, and you'll be praised. If you do what is evil, you should be what? Afraid. If you do what is evil, you should be afraid. This is not a perfect, okay? Civil government is not perfect. Don't think that every time you do evil, you get caught, and every time you do good, it, it's good, Okay? Sometimes the innocent are found guilty, so we understand that because we live in a sinful world, in a sinful world. But the rulers are empowered by God to inflict the severest punishment. Rulers are empowered by God to inflict the severest punishment. They have the sword. What are swords good for? Spanking? No. Slicing, hacking, killing. Okay? That is the image that we have here. The civil government has been given the authority to inflict the most severe punishment upon those who are unjust, those who pursue those things, those who break the laws that are set down. If you practice evil, the civil government has every right to punish you to the fullest extent. Now, the church is the spiritual authority. The state is the civil authority. The church is called to pray for and support the civil authority, while the state is called to guarantee the liberty of the church and protect the church, while not showing favoritism to any branch of the church. Our understanding of the state comes from Scripture, not from the state itself. The state and civil governments do not define themselves. God defines them and their limitations. So it's important to remember, this is the primary reason for the existence of the state. It is to protect, maintain, and support human life. Protect, maintain, and support human life. When it fails this, it becomes unjust. Let's turn over to Daniel, and we'll see what happens to a government that becomes corrupt. you find Daniel chapter 4 at the end of uh, right after Ezekiel in the Old Testament. So we laid a foundation, church and state. We've seen the context in which Paul writes this. We've broken down some of what Paul says about the authority of civil government and how we're to respond. Now what happens to civil governments that get out of whack? 
Does this always happen? Well, we often, I, I, I didn't look ex, in, in, uh, in depth, but we find that corrupt governments fall apart. Okay? Governments that are not responsible to the things of their foundation and the things of the people. Despots, sometimes they fall apart when they die. Okay? And it's, and, and, but remember, in the Old Testament, in the people of God, when God would judge Israel, when he would judge his people for their unfaithfulness, it wasn't everybody who was unfaithful. There was always a remnant who was faithful. But they fell under that judgment too because they were part of the body. And I, I would think some of those people who were faithful to the Lord were taken off into you know, other countries, were killed, uh, were starved, and all those things. It just is the nature of civil government because it is a sinful world. Now, we look at Daniel chapter 4, starting in verse 19. This is one example of what happens to a government that is civil that gets out of whack, okay? It gets out of whack. Now, in Daniel, in the first four chapters, we have examples of God's sovereignty over almost everything. In the first chapter, God's sovereignty is shown in the way that he gives wisdom to Daniel and his, and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they survive the testing of their captivity. In the second chapter of Daniel, God's sovereignty is shown in that Daniel alone is able to interpret a dream which Nebuchadnezzar's wise men don't have a clue about. In chapter 3, God's sovereignty is shown by the three guys who went into the furnace and Nebuchadnezzar looks in and how many are in there? Four. Okay, four. And they come out with not even the smell of smoke upon them. Now we come to the fourth chapter, and we have Nebuchadnezzar's own confession of the sovereignty of God. So let me begin to read here. Chapter 19. Then Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. And Belshazzar answered and said, My Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. So he has called Daniel to interpret another dream for him. He did so well with the first one. He says, Come and interpret this dream. Verse 20. So this is the interpretation. The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and whose branches the birds of the sky lodged, it is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great, and reached to the sky, and your dominion to the end of the earth. How does that make you feel if you're the king? This is my dream, and, and man, did you see the, the extent of that tree and how big that was? And this is Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, he's the man. 23, and in that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king. 
that you be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beast of the field and you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. It will be restored to you once you come to your senses and understand that heaven rules, not you. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity." All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Verse 29. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal place. Twelve months. Twelve months Nebuchadnezzar has to chew on this interpretation of the dream. That this is what is going to happen to him. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power for the glory of my majesty? And while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you and you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes immediately the word concerning nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of the heaven until his hair had grown like eagle feathers and his nails like birds claws The most powerful man in the world is challenged by the prophet whom he believes and who has successfully interpreted his dreams before. And the prophet says to him, get it together. Don't let your pride get the best of you. You are under God's authority. You are not sovereign to yourself. And he has 12 months to contemplate this. And what does he do? He blows it off. 12 months later, as he is exalting himself in all that he has done the words come true and he loses his mind and for seven years he is off in the fields and in the pastures and he eats grass he becomes like a cow he he becomes almost dehumanized or into a subhuman condition in this event he wanders as a beast in the field under the judgment of God verse 34 But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, this is him telling, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. It wasn't that he became so bright after those seven years and got it together. God said it's going to be seven years. When seven years was over, his eyes were then opened once again. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honor him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, 
but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what hast thou done? And at that time my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors, and my nobles began seeking me out, so I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all of his works are true, his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. The guy who rules the world had to be crushed to the point where he was nothing. Then his eyes were opened, and he saw, he says, I'm not sovereign. It is God, the King Most High, who is sovereign. Friends, I don't say that every ruler who is unjust in the world today will be sent out for seven years. But every ruler and every civil authority that is unjust will find judgment from God. That judgment will come upon them. And we'd like to see that judgment in our lifetime. There are plenty of governments throughout history that we would have loved to see God come and judge and destroy. Some of those despotic rulers, they just simply died of old age. But when they closed their eyes in death, there was judgment for them. Because they acted in ways that were unjust. Because they pursued their own pride and their own glory and their own sinfulness and did not repent and turn all that they were over to our Heavenly Father. Is any civil government perfect? No. Why? Because we get into it. And none of us are perfect. But it is the church's responsibility to think about government in the theological terms and act accordingly. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, the believers who receive this were facing a persecution that we know very little about in this world and in our context. Paul does not sugarcoat what he says, but he lays it out plainly before them that you ordain civil governments to act in certain ways. They can become corrupt, and it is our job to work to hold them accountable, but also to obey them until the point where we have to choose to obey them or to obey you. Heavenly Father, might our vision always be clear that our obedience lies with you, that we take every thought captive to the things of Christ and to the word of God, that our allegiance lies with our heavenly king because you have brought salvation to our lives You have brought mercy and grace to we who did not deserve it. And you call us to live those things out in whatever society we find ourselves. Lord, might we we be found faithful to these words and to the way that you have designed this world. No matter how corrupt it becomes. And Lord, we pray for those believers in other parts of the world who do face these same kind of first century persecutions in their life where it is against the law to gather together and to worship, where is it against the law 
to proclaim the things of Christ and to tell others about your work. Lord, we pray for their protection. And not just that, Lord, but that they would flourish in the midst of their persecution. That they would flourish in the midst of even an unjust civil government. That your church would go forward. That they would understand that nothing can stop the spread of the gospel. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.